This morning's scripture, 15th chapter, Roman, verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for Paul's writings that were inspired by your spirit. Father God, we just pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to them this morning. Lord, as we look deeply into this notion of prayer and what it means and how you work through it and because of it, Father, we just pray, Lord, that we can see you in a different light that we can see you for the God that you are, the protecting and loving God. And Father, I just pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of your spirit and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So we're going to wrap up chapter 15 this morning. Next week is Father's Day. Normally don't do this. I normally... Just keep right on rolling through whatever scripture that we're going through for both Mother's Day and Father's Day. The only time I jump out of it and go topical is during Christmas and Easter. But for the past few weeks, God has laid heavy on my heart uh, the notion and idea of family and being a mom and a dad. And so I feel, feel like next week would be a wonderful time to explore that in a deeper way. So we will take a break next week, then we'll jump back in to chapter 16 and finish up the last chapter of Romans. And just a heads up, we will be just moving right along and jumping into 1 Corinthians. So that will be the next book we're going to look at after we wrap up Romans. Not too fast. We still have this to get through. Today's message is on prayer. And I believe it kind of flows along with the Bible study, even though we're not having Bible study, but is it Mark 7? 8. 8 is on prayer. So for some reason, God's wanting us to look at prayer in these coming weeks in this morning. You know, prayer is one thing that too oftentimes gets taken for granted. It gets taken for granted, and I would imagine that all of you would agree with me that Our prayer life probably isn't where it should be or where we would spiritually like for that to be. So hopefully this will enlighten us a little bit about understanding prayer, understanding how God works through prayer, how God works through corporate prayer, not only just the individual. The question I pose up there is, why pray? Why do we pray at all? And so hopefully as we go through this this morning, it'll give us a little better understanding of why we pray and how God works through our prayers. So we're going to pick it up in the passages that I just read. So Paul begins verse 30, and he's urging the Roman Christians to pray for him. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in prayer so it's a little bit more he includes a little bit more than just oh by the way y'all need to be praying for me right it's much more detailed as he's going through this and notice how he urges them to pray 
He urges them to pray by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. He throws those in there. And so that should automatically bring in our minds, why is he saying that? Now, if you see the words by, it may throw you for a loop, but you can actually replace that with because. Because, the same word is translated by our translators, they just chose to use the word by. So, now I urge you, brethren, because of our Lord Jesus Christ and because of the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in prayer. So it makes a little bit more sense when we look at it that way. But then it takes us back to our original question, why does Paul do it? Why does he do that? Why don't he just ask them, hey, remember me in your prayers? That's what we do, right? That's what we do a lot of times, if not all the time. God moves our will by engaging our minds. I'll repeat that. God moves our wills by engaging our minds. And so instead of Paul just commanding them to pray for him, he reminds them of these two godly truths. And God engages our minds by his truth. And that is how he moves our wills, is through hearing his truth. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by or because of the word of God. So the first truth that he gives these readers in Rome is that Jesus Christ is their Lord. They are submissive to him. And they share that with each other. Because he says, by our Lord or because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He just doesn't say because of Jesus Christ. It's our Lord. And so what that word Lord brings with it is a lordship or a kingship or a ruling authority over each other. Not only each other, but over all of creation. So he is the ruler, he is the king of kings, lord of lords, he rules all of creation, believers and unbelievers alike. And so he tells them that, reminds them of that, and we're going to see why in a minute. And then he also reminds them of the love of the Spirit, the same Spirit that they share with each other, the same Spirit that every believer in this room shares with each other. And that Spirit evokes the love that we have for each other. And he wants them to remember that as they strive with him in prayer. Striving is a very unique word, right? It shows a battle. Be diligent with me in your prayers. So we're going to see how this plays out, and we're going to look at Acts and see how this plays out. And it's a beautiful, beautiful way that it goes about, or God goes about answering these prayers. So remember where Paul is, right? He's in Corinth. He's in Corinth, and he's writing this letter to the Romans, and he's in the process of doing something, and hopefully you all can remember what he's in the process of doing. He's collecting money to take back with him to Jerusalem. Now, he's wanting to go to Rome, right? He's actually wanting to go to Spain, and it would be much easier for him to send the money back to Jerusalem with somebody else. It would save him 2,000 miles on foot than to have to go to Jerusalem, turn around, go back to Rome, and on his way to Spain. 
But that's not what he chooses to do. Right now, he's going to go to Jerusalem and take this gift or this money. But he's asking these leaders and these Christians in Rome to pray for his trip. And he's asking them to pray for his trip because of two concerns that he has. That I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea or Jerusalem. He knows there are unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem that would love nothing more than to see him dead. He knows that. So that's the first group of people that he's asking the Romans to pray for him about. And then we have a second group of people. That my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. That whenever he takes all this money back to Jerusalem, that they will accept it. That they will be glad that he did. Because we've got Jewish believing Christians and we've got Gentile Christians. And so often they did not mix at the time. There was a great deal of animosity for each other. So Paul's fear is, I go back and take this money, these gifts from the Gentile churches to these Jewish Christian people. He's afraid that they're going to say, you know, you're kind of belittling us with your money. We don't need the Gentiles looking after us. We were first. We don't need any of their dirty money. I mean, after all, they are the group of people that eat meat sacrificed to idols, do all kinds of silliness. We don't want their charity. So Paul knows that in his mind, and he's concerned about what the reaction is going to be, even with the believers as well as the non-believers, whenever he goes back to Jerusalem. So he's asking the church in Rome to pray for him. And we see this first group, those that are not believers, believers, the disobedient in Judea. So the term Lord, remember back here when he says, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, he uses that to establish that, remember, Jesus has the authority to restrain those who might come against me. He's affirming that Jesus has the authority. He rules over all of mankind. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He has the unique authority to restrain the disobedient unbelievers from killing him when he goes to Jerusalem. So I believe that's why he refers and says, pray for me because, or I urge you in prayer, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second group of people, those Jewish believing Christians, you know, they have the animosity with the Gentiles. But what does he remind them of? The second part here, the love of the Spirit. So he's taking care of both groups of people whenever he urges the the brethren in Rome to pray for him. Pray for me because Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He has all power to restrain the unbelievers from killing me. Pray for me because of the love of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that all believers share. The Jerusalem group of believers, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, share the same Spirit as the Gentile believers. And he's saying that Spirit, we pray that that Spirit would cause the love to overcome 
any type of objection that they may have to the gift that I'm going to be bringing them. So he gives them a very specific acknowledgement and his prayer is unique in that God is able to take care of everything you're going to be praying for when I return to Jerusalem. And I think that is important and it was convicting to myself that I don't necessarily do this. You know, when we pray, it's just kind of a generic pray for me. Well, whenever we do that, or we just kind of, the urge comes in and of itself, we kind of get credit for it. But who's going to get the credit here if these people in Jerusalem are restrained? And if the Jewish believers in Jerusalem show love and accept that gift? It's 100% God. Because he acknowledges that. I mean, I'll give you, for instance, if you have turmoil, chaos, drama, or whatever, don't just say, pray for me. Say, because of the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, pray for me. You see the difference? You see how it's unique to the very power that God has? Or healing. Because he is the great physician. Pray for me. And so it's a very unique way that goes back and ends up with God being glorified in the end. He is the one that gets glorified whenever he answers that prayer. Another question, though. Why didn't Paul just pray on his own? He's a pretty powerful believer, right? Say he's got a pretty direct line to God. Why does he ask other people to pray for him? Why do we ask others to pray for him? And maybe we don't even know. Maybe the thoughts never even crossed our minds. But why does that come about where there is a need for corporate prayer? And we don't do it enough, all right? We actually need to have prayer meetings where that's all we're doing as a congregation. But why is that the case? Why did he ask others to pray for him? Is it a situation where the more people you have praying, the better chances are God's going to hear it? Is that what we're looking at? Is Paul thinking, well, you know, my prayer may not get out of this room, but if I've got a whole church in Rome praying for me, then it's pretty likely God's going to hear it. Of course that's not. It's silly, right? It's silly to think that way. So why is it? Why do we have the prayer chain? And I will tell you that we don't have the prayer chain just so we know what everybody's afflictions are in this life. Why do we have it? Why do we seek prayer from others, from those that are sick, for those that are enduring whatever it may be? The more people who are praying, the more God is glorified when he gets or when he answers that prayer. That's it. 100%. When we pray for something corporately as a church and God answers that prayer, then we should all be glorifying Him together in mass that He answered that prayer. That's the beauty of corporate prayer. That's why we are asked to pray as a group so that when that prayer is answered, God is glorified over many people. If Paul would have kept this prayer to himself, God would have been glorified only by Paul. 
But as the Roman people get to see this play out, then they're going to glorify him in mass. And God's glory will be much greater than what it otherwise would have been. Where am I? And he says that here in 2 Corinthians 1.11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So God is glorified by many when many pray and God answers. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. So prayer is all about the glory of God. And as part of that glory of God, then we receive the benefits of the answers to those prayers. Back to verse 30. So what does prayer do? What does prayer actually do? What is, what is Paul, he's asking them to pray for him so that he would be A, received by the saints in Jerusalem and B, protected against the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Prayer changes people's wills. I'll say it again. Prayer changes people's wills. It's what Paul's asking, right? I'm asking that you pray to God so that the people that are receiving this gift, that their will will be so inclined that they are appreciative of this gift. I'm asking that you pray to God so that he inclines the will of either the unbelievers or those around the unbelievers, that they act in a way not to kill me. That's ultimately what prayer does, folks. Prayer changes people's wills. Paul is asking God's intervention in the lives of those groups of people. Now, there are a lot of people that will find this notion rather offensive, right? And this whole idea of bringing the human will into it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. They can't wrap their head around them. Humanism has so influenced the church that if you mention God intervening in the will of mankind, it's absolute nonsense. We have denominations that are made up of just that idea, right? Free will Baptists. God's not going to interfere with mankind's will, right? That, that, that's tantamount to their life. That I'm my own person, God does not overcome or interfere with my own free will. I've heard those statements many times from my Armenian brothers and sisters. God will never interfere or overcome your will. He'll never have you do anything against your will. And that's actually correct, but that's for a different time. So as I was preparing this message, I thought about that idea and that notion. So I ask friends of mine, why do those who take that belief that God will never interfere with anyone's will, why do those who take that belief, do they pray for the, the unbelievers? 
If you are of the notion or idea that God will never interfere with anyone's will, do you pray for unbelievers? Because if you do, why? Because that's what you're asking God to do, right? If you're praying for an unbeliever, you're asking God to go within that person and incline their will toward him so that they would be saved. But if you truly believe that God does no business in the will of mankind, you can't really pray for anybody or anything. Because every prayer is premised on the authority of God to be able to intervene in human lives. And whenever he intervenes in human lives, he changes us. He inclines our will. It was sort of an aha type situation because it doesn't get any simpler than that, folks. That's a very simple illustration. If God is not powerful enough to intervene and change people's lives, I don't want him because he can't answer my prayers. Moreover, he can't answer anybody's prayer. He can't do what you're asking to do. Last I checked, that would mean he's not God. Now, we, do we know that it's happening? No. We don't know that it's happening, and the way he intervenes, as Brady said in Sunday school this morning, is way above my pay grade. I have no idea. I just know that through prayer, God intervenes in people's hearts and inclines their will a certain way. And he does it over and over and over throughout the Bible. And that's what Paul's asking God to do. To intervene in the wills of the Jews in Jerusalem as well as the believers in Jerusalem so that he might not be harmed and so that this gift would be well received. And this is a beautiful story because its beauty lies in we get to see the answer. We get to see it play out. We get to see the fruits of this letter to the Romans and what they did. And those of you that can remember, when we went through Acts a few years ago, that's where we're going to see this play out. <clears throat> and it is beautiful. So here in the 21st chapter of Acts, Paul gets back to Jerusalem. He's written his letter. His letter has gone to Rome. The Roman church, no doubt, read his letter, been praying. He goes back to Jerusalem, and here's exactly what he was concerned about playing out in real time, in his life. Then all the city of Jerusalem was provoked, and people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating him. So we pick this story up. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He goes back to the temple. And as I said, his fears were realized, and we see that Paul, what he said he thought was going to happen was exactly what was going to happen. These Jews, not Christian, these were Jews in the temple. They accused him of bringing a Gentile to the temple, which was a false accusation, and they sought to kick him out, and they were going to kill him. And the beating ensued. Then something miraculous happens. 
something extraordinary happens in this scene. Someone ran to the commander of this Roman army and told them, we've got chaos, we've got a riot going on over here. What prompted that someone to run to the Roman leader to tell him, we've got a riot going on here? It wasn't happenstance, folks. It was the prayers of the Roman church that led to this individual saying to the Roman army leader, commander, we've got a riot going on over here. Now, did that person know that God had intervened and inclined their will to go report that? No. But it was the very way that God works in and through the hearts of people to change people and get them to do things. So the Roman church continues to be praying for him not to be killed. And so what did this Roman commander do? It's a bunch of Jews. Who cares? These are Roman soldiers. They don't care. But this Roman commander and centurions ran down and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So not only did this individual go report what was going on, but then God so inclined the hearts of the commanders and soldiers to go forward to this riot And then he so inclined the unbelievers that when they saw the Roman cohort, they stopped beating him. All the time, the Roman church is praying for Paul not to be killed while he's in Jerusalem. It's not the end of it. We jump down to chapter 23. It's a long passage, so bear with me. Actually, get you caught up, the Roman soldiers and commanders arrested Paul. They actually take him out of free society and arrest him and put him away, which was all the more reason and ability to keep him safe during this time. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would not eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander and bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near, this, near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council 
as though you were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 men are lying in wait for him, who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Then he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. I didn't finish that. With seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to him having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, and having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving of death or imprisonment. That I was informed that there would be a plot against the man. I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their order, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the... By, by, But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked for what province he was, from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So we see here there is another plot. It wasn't enough that they dragged him out of the temple and started beating him, but we have 40 Jewish men that took a vow or an oath. And that vow or oath was, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. We're going to stop at nothing. And so they even went to the high priest and they said, well, we understand that he is in Roman care, but we want you to ask for him to come back, that you want to make a deeper inquiry as to his guilt or innocence. And when he comes back, we're going to intercept him and we're going to kill him. And they said, okay. Or the high priest said, okay, good idea. So I hope you picked up. Who heard of this plan? A king? Someone with great authority? No. A small boy. A small boy heard of this situation. And it wasn't just any small boy. In fact, it was Paul's nephew. He heard of what was going to happen. So we see God working here that he puts this small boy in this place at the time. And inclines his will to take this message to Paul to tell him, look, 40 men have put together a plot to kill you. He tells Paul, Paul says, well, you need to tell the centurion soldier. So this young boy goes and tells the centurion soldier. That message then gets relayed to the commander. 
Let's see where I'm at. I'm kind of lost in my scripture. So here we have the commander. And this will give you some idea of how old this boy is. He takes him by the hand. He takes him by the hand and inquires of this young boy privately. Folks, I will assure you that this isn't an ordinary thing that a Roman commander would do. They pay no attention to young kids that throw out wild accusations. How did this happen? You know how it happened. It happened because the church in Rome was corporately praying for Paul's safety. And so God is busy inclining the will of this boy to go to Paul, who then transfers him to the Roman commander, and he transforms and inclines the will of the Roman commander for one time to listen to this young boy about manly things. And he listens to him, and he tells him about the plot. So what did the Roman commander do then? What was the response? And it's another amazing thing. On the word of an unknown small boy, the Roman commander gives this instruction. He called to him, 200 soldiers, get 200 soldiers by the third hour of the night and go to Caesarea, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. That's a lot of resources based on what a young eight-year-old boy is saying. Who would do that? Only somebody that God intervenes in their lives, hearts, and minds and inclines their will to listen to this story. And they did it for one reason and one reason only. Because Paul, the church at Rome, and others were praying for his safety. Amazing to be able to see both ends of this, to be able to see Paul write to the church at Rome saying, please pray for me because I'm worried about what's going to happen. Because I think that the unbelievers are going to attack me and I'm worried that the believers won't accept my gift. And so we see the unbelievers attacking him and we see God so at work and so mightily busy in the hearts and minds of believers and unbelievers. It's not just limited to believers. He's working through this Roman commander who no doubt is an unbeliever, but he's inclining his will and he's changing him for Paul's good. So, What about that second request? We see what God did ultimately to protect Paul from the unbelievers. But what about those believers, that second group of people that he so desired that would graciously accept the gift that he was going to offer? What what about them? Let me see. 21, and the following day Paul went with us to James and the elders were present. He is in Jerusalem. James was the leading elder of the church in Jerusalem. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, no doubt carrying this gift offering with him. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. They were well received 
the spirit of love through the prayer to God had overcome any type of disdain or animosity that this Jerusalem church was going to have for Paul in bringing this gift. And it was only because of the power of prayer. I hope that you all have been able to see something maybe a little clearer than you ever have here. How God acts in and through prayer the way God goes about doing it, that in fact he does intervene in our own wills. If he doesn't, no use praying. If we can't pray for somebody to be saved, thereby God intervening and changing their will, then we shouldn't be praying. But we see how God answers the prayers of the church at Rome. And I don't know about you, but I think it's just beautiful to be able to see that. Because we see prayers going up all the time, and it's not very often that we get to see the requests and we get to see how they are answered in the New Testament in basically one book. It is amazing. But to know that God acts by changing wills, regardless of whether they are believers or unbelievers. And when He does this, who's glorified? They, the groups, the church at Rome, I promise you, when the church of Rome got news that God had saved Paul from death in Jerusalem and that the gift was well received, they all stood up and were glorifying God. Much more glory than if Paul had just been praying on his own. And that's what we should do as well. Hopefully we can see why prayer is so important. Not only for God's glory, but also because of our gifts or what God gives us through that prayer. God is a God that restrains enemies. God is a God that demonstrates love in a beautiful way. We must never neglect our prayer lives as individuals and corporately as a church. Amen? Let's all stand and join together.